I'm waiting for Len to say go. There is no go. All right, three, two, one, go. And we start. So I think we wanted to catch up on some of the the community events that happened in the weekend, i.e. bar camp and code retreat. Did you go to anything this weekend? I did not. I took the weekend off. That's why she wants to catch up. (laughs) Well, and I, so uh, this actually was, I I did have some serious FOMO, but I. (laughs) Oh man, I love that word. Right. And. I had to, I had to Urban Dictionary that when you uh, tweeted it. Oh, FOMO. So what does it stand for? Fear of missing out. I actually do have a kind of a one weekend a month rule for uh, industry events. And since I went to the hackathon the other weekend, that kind of knocked out this past weekend for any industry events. That's a good rule. Javon yeah. Came the so other otherwise, day. I because there were there were definitely some months where like I was doing something every weekend, but also it had the the bad side effect of then I just started when I make a rule, I'll, you know, follow the rule, and so I would cleverly shift conference things and stuff to the week, and then I would be exhausted from the week. I think I've got a decent rhythm now. But so what did happen this weekend? Yeah, how was the uh, code retreat? I had a good time. I didn't write Ruby at all, which I think is the second time that's happened at a code retreat. I wrote Haskell with two people and Python with two people and JavaScript. And uh, my pair for JavaScript, we vastly overestimated our JavaScript abilities. But yeah, I had a good time. Uh, I learned also, a lot, met some people. I also had a good time. I was a little worried at first because only nine people showed up and 22 people are RCP. But then I realized that there's nine people that came to participate and have a good time. So I'm going to have a good time too. And I did one Haskell and two Rubies, two Ruby session sessions. Um, yeah. I want to give Len, I want to give you some shit, Len. Why? Because you said like you've done it so many times. Right. That you're not going to learn anything. I think you always learn something. Like even though. I didn't say that I'm not going to learn anything. I just said I have very strong opinions on, on the way I think you should start. And I felt like. The ones that I've done in the past, we we picked a language, so I would be interested in doing other languages, but doing Game of Life in Ruby is not interesting to me. Like, I don't know what I want to start with. I want to start with a board that, like, clones itself. Like, I have very strong opinions already. But you always talk about beginner's mind. I, I think, like, if someone is nearer than you that you're pairing with, and they make a... Like, you can start a certain way, but along the way, if you allow them to make a decision, that could change, like, the whole world and... You might be in a different thing than you've ever been. And you might learn something. You might use a certain Ruby-ism that you haven't used before. I found that over the weekend. I was like, I need to talk to Len about this. Board that clones itself. Yep, that's how I start. So you Just mean like... I go ahead. Tried to do outside in. Also someone else and I tried to do outside in. And proved to be pretty difficult. No, it wasn't, yeah. Well, more difficult than starting with just a, a little bit. Yeah, I guess I had like a thought process about outside in testing which i do prefer but it's always frustrating to like you add the minimal case of like an empty board and then like one cell dies and then you try to do something that actually may has some kind of logic and then you kind of have to write everything below it to make it work right which is fine for languages i'm comfortable in like in ruby and RSpec, i will mark a spec as pending or stub stuff out so that it still works and i can go down to the next layer um but it's hard when you're strictly uh, unit testing, especially in a functional language, to do that without like a way. I, I guess the answer is mark a spec as pending or just comment it out until you come back to it. But that feels kind of dirty. Also, we had great donuts. Jervon brought, brought us uh, 
Blyler's Donuts from Reading Terminal Market. Sir, if you're ever in Philly, go to Blyler's Donuts. So good. So dangerous. Get the peanut butter jelly. That one was pretty good. I really like the, the peanut butter ones. The non-jelly <laughs> peanut butter ones. Len, did you go to Bar Camp? I did go to Bar Camp. Um, the after party was really fun. How was Bar Camp? Bar Camp was all right. I was a little perturbed that I went to three different talks where developers and people in tech seemed overly concerned that requirements changed. And it was like they saw it as a problem. And it was just like, well, of course, requirements change. Did you did you speak up with such an opinion, Lynn? I did. I'm like, that's a good thing. And everyone looked at me like I was like from another planet. So the really? the answer to that is that like the, the the fact that things change over time was surprising. No, not that it was surprising, but people found it to be like problematic, a hindrance to doing their work. They're like, oh, the requirements change, and we never reach the deadlines. Yeah. <laughs> so and the answer should be well, one, you shouldn't have deadlines, and uh, two, that your software should be able to change with the requirements. Yes. Just check. <laughs> and there were like multiple people who were kind of arguing very waterfally things that like, well, if you just flush the requirements out more, then maybe they won't change. Were these developers or project managers or? A mix of both. Freelancers too. Hmm. They sound like a uh, fixed, fixed bid. <laughs> there was one talk about freelancing. Like it was like open discussion about freelancing. So I think a lot of people are coming from like the fixed bid, like I'll build your WordPress like site for X dollars. And I could see that being a problem. What other good talks were there? Uh, there's a talk on getting your team to go remote, which was pretty good. Oh, cool. George Perkins gave that. Tell them to stay home and give them tools to do so? Yep. <laughs> and uh, I actually argued about having all of your tool chain, like constantly reporting into your, your team chat. And he all argued that that was a substitute for stand-ups and statuses. Because if, mm. every, if every commit you make, if every deploy you make uh, goes in a hip chat, like... Why do you need a stand-up? Like, everyone has total visibility to the team. Yeah, I like talking to people for at least 10 minutes a day. <laughs> Sometimes stand-up. <laughs> I don't know Doesn't stand-up. that lead to a lot of noise, though? That seems like, uh, I think Pam mentioned before, like, all the team communication patterns, like, when they control them, just end up with, hey, leave me alone. I forget what the exact phrase she used was. The... Uh- Wait, what are you referring to? You you were saying something around like uh, if you ask a team to, of developers to. Um, oh yeah, if you if you ask people what they want, they want to just be be left alone, and so yeah. they'll do whatever it takes to get that one answer, which generally means not talking to anyone. Yeah, that's what that's what that sounds like, Len. Yeah, and enslaving them, but uh, I mean, your tools reporting into chat is a good thing. Yeah, I agree. I don't think it's a replacement for talking to people once a day. No, but I mean. With remote teams, you have to get better at asynchronous information. That's also true. Hmm. All right. I I redact my statement. You're right. Redacted. Uh, What kind of talk would you have given if you were on time to put your name on the board? So I was just going to do a discussion on Agile Mm. uh, since we think we realized on our Agile show that we could talk about that indefinitely. (laughs) Uh, Just open discussion. But yeah, I I haven't made any new like talk talks this year, so... I didn't have any of those in the hopper. Do you think that talk would have went well based on what the experience was with the other talk? It would have been lively either way, I think. Okay. It's always an easy bar camp ha- hack if you don't have a talk prepared, just like open discussion. And then you just stand there and everyone just talks and it's a fun time. I like those more than prepared talks and at bar camp. So some bar camps ban prepared talks. I like that. 
the Philly one's a little weird. Yeah. Hmm. So that that the the rule is that you can't have a a single person talking in front of people. So not even just prepared talks, but that it's a uh, some of them have that rule because they their raison d'etre for bar camp is that it's about people meeting together and collaborating, not about people listening to one person. And that's that's why they do that. It seems more uh, fulfilling for that kind of experience. Like a lot of times I go to conferences and it's just I sit in you know six sessions a day and listen to somebody talk and I'm like oh, I could have done this at home probably. Well, well you I get mean, all that coding time in. The- <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, no, but then, but then while we're talking. Yeah, but then but then the benefit is talking to people in between the sessions and I don't like ditching sessions to talk to people usually. I do. Uh, because yeah, of FOMO or. Uh, no, I just feel like these people spend a lot of time on their talk, and I want to uh, give them the my time. But if that talk is going to be like on YouTube in some other form, I'll often just skip it and then watch it on YouTube at one and a half speed after the conference. I just won't watch it if that happens, <laughs> historically speaking. I was wondering about you, Len, because you were talking about how um, you listen to podcasts at like 2x speed. Right. There's this new podcast, which is... Uh, What's it called? Like a mini series, a uh, serial. And I was wondering if you listen to that at two x speed. And then I was wondering if you like watch TV shows at two x speed. I would lo- well, I would, I would love to watch TV shows at two x speed. But I watch conference talks at one and a half speed. Uh, serial was going to be my pick, so I'm getting that later. But okay, I do listen to that. At, like uh, the Castro app has a little slider, so I could pick. So I don't know. They don't give you a number. So I listen to it at three rabbits, whatever that is. Three rabbits. That's nice to take the. Uh... You probably have some kind of association in mind with like what one and two are. Yeah. So wait, which which system do you use such that the speed up tool is a rabbit? Uh, it's called Castro. Castro. So I had a weird problem because there was there was no like good podcast app. So I wanted to get caught up on Serial. Uh, so I didn't want to put it in in Overcast because it's like bad to find like go in reverse sequential order because most podcast apps want you to listen to the newest one first and pretty much that's it so i have like an app that's just for serial because i wanted to listen one <laughs> two three four five six the and apple podcast what is serial uh, are, are we ready for picks no <laughs> no i mean you can explain it for the uh so funny story uh i don't want to hear too much about it because i'm still going to i want to listen to it blind so I listened to it super blind in the fact that somebody told me it was like a fictional thing. Uh, it's about a real murder case. And the journalist is like uncovering all these facts and interviews and interviewing people 15 years later. Is it True Detective, the podcast? Kind of, but it's like it really happened. Like there's somebody in jail and it's questioning like, did he really do this murder? And What's the murder that Capote covered? Oh, I don't know. That one. It sounds like that. Yeah. So anyway, I listened to like six hours of it. And then I listened, I got so obsessed with it, thinking it was fiction. Uh, I started listening to a podcast about the podcast, and they were like, oh, yeah, the, the weird thing is that this is all in real life. I'm like, holy crap. And I Googled it. I just imagine, like, finding out, like, your favorite, like, TV show was, like, real life. Star Trek? Yes. <laughs> Nerd. Not my favorite. I just, that's what came to mind first. The Capote book was In Cold Blood. That's the... As the greatest crime seller of all time. So maybe Serial will be the greatest crime podcast of all time. I mean, the bar probably isn't set very high. It's so good. It's so addicting. I got deep into the subreddit problem. And that's my pick. (laughs) All right. Goodbye, guys. Bye. (laughs) You know what? I wish there was an app that let you, like, listen to YouTube at, like, one and a half speed. So I think if it's you shut called your, YouTube. No, but if you shut your screen off, like I want to listen to conference talk while I'm like walking. Ah. Uh, 
And I would yeah. also like if they were like, if somebody uh, filtered them. So, oh, here are talks that you don't really need to see the slides for. Oh, dude, that's actually, that's, we could build that app. <laughs> but then someone has to do the curation too. Because a lot of them. What curation? Do, a lot of uh, conferences have a channel. So what? you would just like, you would just automate ripping the audio out. Right. And then feed it into your service and set up a, a feed service. And then if anything, you might, you know, people could do the timings of associated slides. What about like, as you can see on the slide. Right. Or live I'm coding. Pointing over here. Yeah. <laughs> Let me just live code. That's what I mean somewhere. is that that could be, that would be a, a second level enhancement of, you know, or, or that when you opened it, if you woke the app, you could wake the video. And it could sync to the video at the time that you were stopped at in the audio. So it has some benefits because if you if you are just listening to audio, that's lower data streaming than streaming a video, if I'm right. And then if you do want to wake up the video, then you're opting into more data. BRB guys, I'm gonna go to I'm gonna go to TechCrunch disrupt. <laughs> you still disrupt scope. the conference watching. You just did a lot of scope creep right there. No, I did version one and version like eight. Yeah. So version one is audio, two slides, like eight. Actually, no, two would be video sync. That's pretty easy because of YouTube timestamps. Anyway, that's my plan. Yeah. So uh, RubyConf 2014 was this week in San Diego. And uh, Matt's, Yukihora Matsumoto, the creator of Ruby, gave a keynote about uh, Ruby 3 and static typing which I thought was pretty awesome. Um, was it live-streamed? How did you see it? I just saw tweets, and there's um, some people posted some, some text from the slides. Um, so I've, I've seen two, two suggestions of this, uh, or two examples. One is you add static types to methods, which is interesting because Ruby is you know, traditionally duct-typed, um, which means like as long as it responds to a, me a method, then you can send it to it. And then, but then you get runtime errors and not compile time errors. Um, but the other suggestion I saw was Gary Bernhardt gave a talk at RubyConf 2012, I want to say, uh, called Boundaries, where he talked about imperative shell and functional core, functional core imperative shell, whatever, doesn't matter which way I say it, I guess, um, where you have objects that send messages to each other, just how we do in Ruby right now, but instead of having objects with like mutating state and um, doing logic in the methods that are responding to our peers, we instead have pure functions inside of the objects that do the hard work. And one of the examples of static typing in Ruby was a way where you could have functions, uh, a different syntax for functions inside of uh, Ruby objects so that it would be very clear like, hey, these are messages from other objects. And then it would be very clear that you had these other functions that were statically typed and uh, were pure similar to other modern programming languages. So so Matt's keynote, he said, like, all all new languages, all modern languages have static typing. Why not Ruby? So I thought that was pretty cool. And it's, like, not guaranteed to go into Ruby. Um, but I think it's pretty cool that Ruby is evolving in that way because I've been looking at other languages that have um, type systems for a while. And I really like them. And it would be cool if Ruby evolved in that way. Also... Uh, Facebook announced, what was it called? Flow? Yep. Uh, which is type annotations for JavaScript. Um, which is a much less, I guess, intrusive way of doing it where you just have this linter that checks all the types before you run your JavaScript. 
whereas the Ruby solution requires a new Ruby. Pam, would you use yes. the static type annotations in JavaScript, have, having learned Scala for a little bit? Yeah. So the thing is that it's a compile. Like I assume that there's a compilation step then. It looks like it like checks the types as part of your build process. So you have a JavaScript thing, and before let's say let's say in production you like compress all your assets. Before you do that, it would check the types and then error if your types were wrong. So yeah, so that's at build time instead of at like runtime. one of the benefits of well well yeah obviously at runtime. But that you no know, when you're when I've been doing Scala stuff that every time I even type anything the IDE yells at me. You could do and that I too. I think it's that when you have a when you're doing types, you kind of need an IDE. So I I use a lot of in plugins for um, like Go and Haskell and Rust. Um, all three of those, whenever I save the file, it will run a a linter specific to that language and then yell at me in the in Vim if it's wrong. I guess it's kind of like making Vim into an IDE. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I like, you're you're adding plugins on top of a yeah a basic editor. But so. I like. I like basic editor. Uh, I like. I like. I mean, uh, that's what it's. <laughs> I like getting those warnings. Yes, yes, it's important when you're working in a language that has that sort of support to get that feedback very quickly. But yeah, it seems like you could be able to do that with this because you just run flow and then give it a JavaScript file, an annotated JavaScript file, and then it will tell you if it's wrong or not, if it is correct. So I'll put links to both of those things, I guess, in the show notes. Len and Jervon are Googling Ruby static types. No, I'm just, <laughs> I'm still static type curmudgeon. I did it for like a decade and, ugh. If you had ass. came to Code Street, we could have, we could have haskled together. Yeah, yeah. Len. Yeah, yeah. So wait, did Flow, where did Flow launch? Did it launch at Chrome Dev Summit or where did it launch? No, it's from Facebook, sorry. Uh, right. I oh, I don't know where it was announced. I just saw it on GitHub and maybe tweets. As implemented in OCaml. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're checking types, you probably want a type language to check types with. Yeah, makes sense. Prove your correctness prover is correct. The only thing I missed about type languages is what the IDE can do. So that was the other the other well, sad thing. Because Len, Len, yeah, Len. Yeah. if you were a Java programmer, yeah, or a .NET programmer with a bad type system, you're probably a Ruby programmer today. Yeah, yeah. What I heard the joke is according <laughs> to that, and now you're also a bad closure programmer. Yes. Yeah, I, I've noticed that people that have historically done C-sharp or Java hate the idea of using a type system. But people that have only used dynamic languages love the idea of using a type system. Uh, Here's the thing that's a pain in the ass, and maybe you could tell me if there's a more modern way of solving it. Mm -hmm. So you have, a, like, you want, say you have a method that you want to do something duct type on, right? Like, mm -hmm. uh, you want to call dot foo on this, and you have two, two different objects that both have a dot foo method. Mm -hmm. Like, now in C sharp, if you want to pass that in as a parameter, you need to, like, make an interface called ifooable and say that, oh, my type now implements ifooable. And that's just such a pain in the ass, and sometimes that abstraction that you make doesn't make sense and it's a lot of ceremony yeah uh so haskell has a i'm not gonna go too deep into this because i don't know what i'm talking about uh but they have like instances so uh okay so in haskell they're called type instances right type, yeah well yeah i think so um so you have let's say you want to print something to the screen in ruby you need to call 2s to it right Haskell has something similar where a type needs to derive show to be able to be printable otherwise it doesn't know how to print it so show is an instance, and you can define instances for show on each uh, type that you have. I mean, show, show is a bad example because it just kind of works. 
And then you can also, yeah, so you're talking about like using generics and in interfaces, right? Well, yeah, the generics is another type of thing, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how to phrase it, but we should, we should code something together. <laughs> I can explain it better. Actually, you mentioned generics, and I was talking to someone about types the other week, and they said that generics and any types are proof that statically typed people secretly just want dynamically typed stuff. Right. The fact that even when you build a type system, you are also offer kind of a, a cheat valve, and you say, well, but you can also have generics. So but this basically means you want dynamic typing. But this isn't contrary to the other thing you said about how smart people you know hate Go because it doesn't have generics. Or at least that's the assumption because everybody that I talk to that doesn't like Go is because it doesn't have generics. Yeah, that's not what I heard from the people who don't like Go. But then I, I saw okay. that other thing that said that the thing about Go's type system is that Go's type system is great for computers and horrible for humans. <laughs> and that it's actually a great type system, we just aren't computers. I yeah. So I watched a presentation on Rust. Steve Klabnik came to Philly RB a couple weeks ago and talked to us about Rust. And the way he explained it was... Uh, Go's type system will not prevent uh, runtime errors, whereas Rust's will. Like Go's types aren't really strong enough to give you any guarantee about the program's execution. I, I like Go for building small things. I mean, you can make the argument that all things should be small and separated. Uh, I'm not suggesting anybody go build like their next Rails app and Go instead. But if you just have like a little utility or a service you want to write, uh, Go's, Go's not a bad choice. I, I, I enjoy working with it. So are we saying we're ready for a type episode? Well, yeah, maybe. We've talked about it, but I think we said we wanted we wanted to both be smarter and then also have someone as a guest. We probably underestimate our abilities with uh, the languages we've been learning. I probably need to learn more formal definitions. I still want somebody who like built something in production, like and maintained it for a few years in the static. And you consider production my Tmux status bar, <laughs> my Tmux Pomodoro. I use that thing every day. 25 minutes at a time. Len, can you explain your interpretation of generics? So I, I only know generics from C-sharp. And if you wanted a strongly typed list of things, right, you would say, like, I want a list of, of type X. Mm -hmm. So you, <clears throat> the generic is, you could, instead of needing, like, a list of integers, you could say, like, oh, I need a list of generic type X. And then the first thing you pass it is, like, that's the thing it is. Or you can put a constraint on that, and like, where X uh, implements, uh, like, ifooable. And then, oh, now you're able to call foo on X. Mm. So generics are just type placeholders. It's like, a, yeah, that, that type is, well... Like, I don't know how to call it, but it has, like, type variables where you can have, like, a method doesn't need to... A function doesn't need to take an int. It could take a... As long as A is of type something else. Right. And of then, instance. Yeah, type variable is what I was going to say. You, and then everything else can take. You could pass that that variable into like another function that takes generic. Yeah, I think I've reached the limit of my types understanding. All I know is that when I code in it, shit doesn't break as often. And usually when my types pass, then my program works. That's pretty awesome. I still don't feel this pain. I don't have things breaking because the wrong type is passed to something. I don't have things breaking. My teams has things breaking. <laughs> well, I think it's because people don't write unit tests. But well, Yeah, yes. Uh, I'll agree with you there. But I think it's nice to have that sort of uh, computer-level guarantee and not a human guarantee that things are working. That is computer-level guarantee. You just, well, write, you just write it. Well, no, 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 no. But, you but, but, you're, but you're trusting other people working on the code base to write the same unit tests at the same level that you are. It's all right. Whereas, trolley here. Uh -huh. It's like... You know when you have to do something with your team? It's like 
uh, the GoFund thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you don't have to make a decision. The thing makes a decision for you. So someone might not write it as a, as a good unit test as you might or not write it at all. But if the typing is there, you can't get away from it. It's going to be there. But then that's just like one shitty level of test when there's the much more important things to test. I, should... I agree, but it's not that shitty of a level. I think, I think yeah. For those who don't know, the Go Fumped or Go Format, as I like to call it, uh, will take a Go input file, a Go source file, and reformat it so that I run Go Format and Pam runs Go Format. Our files will look exactly the same no matter how we wrote them. It's like Rubocop. Kind of. But better. Uh, so it takes the the social conversation of like, hey, maybe you should indent this more or it just, it just does it for you. You don't have to worry about it. But do you eventually learn to write it in the better way? Uh, no, actually. So, or do you, are you a lazy jerk? Well, another thing with that Vim plugin is um, I will just type something kind of lazily. Yeah, I'm a lazy jerk. And when I save it, it'll just format it right away and I don't have to worry about it. So I just kind of like write what I don't, I don't spend time like in Ruby a lot. I will in JavaScript, I will select a block of text and press equal in Vim to indent it properly. You I feel need, like you that, that sounds too. like the something an IDE does. Sounds like the programming equivalent of the death of the ability to spell. <laughs> you know, this like that, that people over time are just becoming horrible, horrible spellers. Everything's autocomplete. Well, it's autocomplete and it's, you know, you have spell check and everything and mm. then you invent new new abbreviations anyway so you don't actually have to say real words. And everything is awful and English is, is dead, <laughs> according to sad writers. Another thing that the Go plugin does will add your imports for you, similar to a IDE also. Well, yeah, that's like an IDE, yeah. And it will also remove them when you stop using them because if you have an import in Go and you don't use it, then it's a, it's a compiler error. Nice. Yeah. That's actually a lot of a good number of IDEs don't do that, and I've noticed that cleaning up other people's stuff, or they 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 import. I noticed this that someone imported they imported all from a module, and then after that they imported a specific thing, and they didn't <laughs> import it as something. They just imported a specific thing, and so it didn't error because they were using the module, but they were already importing it as as the the glob. So Haskell will yell at you too. It'll say if it's um, a redundant import or a unused yeah, import. Yeah, redundant. Yeah, nice. How was the JavaScript meetup last night? It went really well. So any, it was. Any projects we should look out for, or any cool topics? I learned that WordPress has backbone. I did not know that. I mean, I, I guess I knew that a lot of the WordPress UI was powered by JavaScript, and therefore likely a JavaScript. MVC, but I did not know that it was based on Backbone. Uh, so, so if you back- are a good Backbone programmer, you can work on a really major open source project and help them. So is the UI, the admin UI Backbone? Or? Yeah. Okay. So, cool. yeah, it's pretty interesting because uh, even even the, the person who gave the lightning talk said it, that yeah, a lot of people associate WordPress with, you know, that it's just a gross pile of PHP and that no one would ever want to touch it ever, but that that's not really true. And also... I try and make sure I don't, I try not to think that because it is, you know, it's a PHP system that powers most of the websites on the internet. So if a website has a CMS, high probability that it's on WordPress. <laughs> on a, a really old version. Well, yeah, sometimes that. I helped someone with some random WordPress thing yesterday and I looked at their, their install and I was just like, what version are you using? <laughs> so it was not the latest. I use WordPress on my stuff and it automatically updates. So convenient yet scary. So are you ready for picks? 
<laughs> sure. <laughs> well, I hate winter, so I'm going to, my pick is the country of Belize because I just, I'm planning a trip to Belize in January because I hate winter. Are you going to work remotely for the rest of the winter? Uh, hibernate? No, I'm going to try not to hibernate because I, you know, I can take the subway to get around town so I can, I will live mostly underground, but I will leave my house. So I've been riding my bike and it hasn't been bad. Mm. It's been okay. Every winter I debate whether or not I want to work remotely for the rest of my life. (laughs) What, because it's awful? Also in the summer. Any extremes, I'm just, eh. Summer's better because, I mean, winter you're going to be working yeah, in an office Justin, anyway. Summer you could be, like, working remotely from the beach. Justin doesn't like to go outside, man. Remember that. No, yeah, and no, I'm saying, like, when it gets too hot or too cold, I don't want to commute. Uh, and it's also depressing because in uh, Philly, it gets dark at, like, 5 o'clock now. Yeah, or earlier. Isn't that on the entire East Coast, though? No, it's the vertical, not horizontal. Which would be? East Coast? Yeah. No. No, the, the Earth's position to the sun and the way we rotate means that Philadelphia and Chicago and, I don't know, Portland or something, right? Those will be getting darker much earlier than Florida and Texas and L.A. But right? when I lived in Florida, uh-huh. there, I'm sure that's science. I'm sure it's right. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying that science the, is, quote, correct. But when I lived in Florida, I remember it getting dark at the same time as around five. It would be a horrible time. I'm sure it does. I'm just saying it's probably less dark at 5 o'clock in Florida than uh, it is in okay, Philly. Okay, okay. I get what you're saying. I mean, if you really want to get technical, the entire northern hemisphere <laughs> would get darker earlier, but probably not the same degree of early. But I was just commenting that your comment of East Coast is uh, perpendicular to what's actually happening. Well, you would get a little more daylight uh, towards the end of the day if you did live on like the westmost border of the time zone. So you can go to, like, the most southwest border of the time zone. Why? Because that's the way the Earth is shaped, too, right? So it's... Oh, but it's, like, per time zone, so an hour, yeah. Right, the west, like, the westmost border of our time zone, you'd get a little I guess you should have raised the point of degree of darkness, and then I wouldn't have... (laughs) What? What do you mean degree of darkness? This is a scientific term. The more eastern you are in a time zone, then it gets darker earlier and also lighter earlier. Yeah. The closer you are to the equator, the less extreme the light changes. I spent a summer in the Netherlands, and man, their days are like, it's sunny till about like 10 o'clock at night. And then at 4 a.m. the sun comes up. It's crazy. So I was going to pick cereal, but I think my pick's going to be like a, a fifth grade like astronomy textbook or something. <laughs> we apparently don't know how planets work. Uh, but no, my pick cereal. I talked about it. It's I've heard about it. You probably heard about it from everybody. It's, and it's really cereal, addicting. cereal with an with an S, not cereal like not like the cereal like Cheerios. Nope, cereal podcast. I binge listened on Sunday, which was awesome because my house got extra clean and I walked Corey so much. Actually, I think I walked him too much. Like we went went for a really long walk, and then when I went to take him for his nighttime walk, he didn't want to go. I think he was afraid I was going to take him for another, like, three-mile adventure. I think he was scared that you're going to listen to that podcast again. <laughs> I put his collar on, and I'm like, I had to, like, yank him off the couch. Did something happen at a Best Buy line? Yes. Okay, because <laughs> the reason I hear about this, I heard about this podcast, is this morning I was scrolling through Twitter. I was like, oh, I'm listening to Serial and driving by a Best Buy. Oh, man. I was like, what? There's a new podcast. <laughs> What's up with Best Buy? 
Uh, the murder, according to one account, allegedly happened in the parking lot of a Best Buy. Spoilers! Spoiler. It's, Is that a spoiler? <laughs> it's a thing that really, really? happened. Really? I think it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Spoilers. So, yep, that's it. So sure Belize to find out where it was, and the first result was <laughs> about John McAfee being a gang suppression unit raiding his research facility. <laughs> what? John McAfee made the McAfee antivirus, and he lives in Belize and is crazy. <laughs> you should you should Google John McAfee uses this. It's terrible. And if you He's... want a good joke, oh wow, this is a this is a weird story. John McAfee enjoying new life in Canada. <laughs> He's in Canada now. According to January of this year. Okay. All right. I guess I'll pick. Uh, my music pick is Lake Street Dive. It's a pretty cool, like jazzy soul band. Their bassist is pretty awesome. Um, I'm, I'm gonna pick their all their music. It's all their music. Um, my programming pick is the Strange Loop channel or account um, on YouTube. I've watched a lot of talks from it, and I've liked all of them so far. So I don't think, yeah, watch the Strange Loop videos. Those are my picks. Justin, do you have a pick? For lack of a better one, I'm going to pick uh, Geometry Wars 3, the video game, the third in the series that I've played a bunch of in the past. And it's coming out uh, November 25th for both PlayStations and Xboxes. And the reason I love it is because each game, it's kind of like an arcade-ish style game. And uh, each game lasts about a minute or two, depending on what mode you're playing. And the greatest thing about it is that it shows on your friends list the next highest score of your friends at all times that you need to beat. And to restart a game, you just like press one button and then you're starting over again. So it's a constant like uh, high score chasing of your friends. It's a lot of fun. So show notes are at turing.cool slash 29. Uh, reach out to us on Twitter at Turing Cool, and I'll talk to you guys next week. Bye.